and welcome to A Bookshelf Binge. I'm your host, Jessica, and today I'm joined by Chad Post. Chad runs 3%, a resource for international literature, which provides articles, reviews, a translation database, and so much more, just the whole nine yards. He's also the publisher at Open Letter, the University of Rochester's nonprofit literary translation press. Open Letter publishes 10 titles in translation each year and searches for works that are extraordinary and influential and works that they hope will become the classics of tomorrow. I'm so glad you can join me and discuss all the incredible things about translating books into English. Oh, thank you for inviting me. This is great. I am so excited. So when I first came up with like the nexus of this podcast, I was like chatting with my big sister about it. And the first thing she said that she wanted to hear about was translation. And a year later, we're finally getting there. (laughs) It's all right. (laughs) So talk to me, talk to me about how like open letter even got started. So it's a bit of a, it's a bit of a weird story uh, and a long story, but I used to work, I initially, when I graduated from college, wanted to be involved in books in one way or another and worked at bookstores for a number of years, both in Michigan and then in North Carolina. And along the way, I got involved in reading a lot of books from Delkey Archive Press, a nonprofit that was at that time was based in Illinois. And they had like a, they did a lot of translations, a lot of international literature, especially French um, and Spanish, which were two areas I was particularly interested in. And so I was reading a lot of the books and they started a magazine called Context that was like a tabloid that would be free and sent to booksellers and academics and would have like information, like longer articles on how to read interesting, strange authors that were more difficult, like say Samuel Beckett or like someone that nobody knew about that was being being translated for the first time. And in there, there was an ad for a internship, um, like an apprenticeship. So I applied for that because I didn't want to be in book selling anymore. I wanted to be on the side of being able to like pick the books and promote the books. I at the bookstore I worked at, I put together like an international fiction section that became quite popular and helped like really boost the sales for translated literature. And I was really into it, but I wanted to be on that other side. So I went to Delkey and was uh, started as an intern there as an apprentice, and then was the associate director for a number of years and then left to go to the University of Rochester to start Open Letter. So Open Letter came out of this kind of birth of experience where during the time at Delkey, we were the largest publisher of translations in America, and we're being invited to countries all over the world to meet with agents, to meet with writers, to meet with critics, to meet with like the government officials, and to do books from all over the world, and to find and fund these sort of series that would come about that nobody else was paying attention to. And so out of that experience is able to go to the university and hook up with both the university's idea of creating a translation program for undergraduates and for graduate students, and then to have alongside of that, a press that was doing really good books, really noteworthy, valuable books, so it helped sort of change the situation on how few books are translated in America and to give students a place where they could get practical experience and that they could see how this all functioned, how do things get edited, how do things get selected, how do they come into being, how do they get promoted and find readership, and also like to reflect well on the university by having titles that, you know, get uh, great attention over maybe not even in the immediate moment, but over the course of X number of years. So that's kind of the the beginnings of it. And then I know you mentioned 3% and that came about because the first to do, you said it took a year to get to translation, to get a, to get the translation press started took like 18 months because we had to like put together the, the business plan, start up with that, figure out who is going to be distributing us, 
find a list of books that we're going to publish and then have those translated. And that can take an inordinate, an inordinate amount of time, depending on the length of the book, depending on where people are. And you always want in publishing books to be available well in advance so that you can send them to reviewers and to, to other people to help promote them. Um, so in the meantime, we knew that uh, this was in 2007, January 2007 was when things were starting, but the first book wasn't going to come out until September of 2008. So in the meantime, we launched 3% as a way of like getting in touch with the field and trying to create something that at that point in time, there were a lot of literary blogs, like there was a moment of like a lot of literary blogs that were out there that people were writing um, about books that they really liked that may not have been getting a lot of mainstream coverage. And there was like a, a sort of trend to that. And, but there's not really one dedicated to translation. So except for maybe Words Without Borders, but that's slightly different because that is Words Without Borders was producing um, samples of things that were being translated into English, not so much like commentary. Um, and so we launched it as a way of trying to bring together readers, translators, international publishers, publishers in the US, all into like a space where you could commune about like what was interesting trends, what were happening in other countries, what books were getting attention, what deserved to be translated, and to sort of peel back the layers and show like how the process worked. Like how does a book go from getting, you know, an award in Germany to then being published in the US three years later and finding its particular audience? This is fascinating to me. Like, this is so interesting. The act of creating like 3% and like the translation database and all of the things that came out of 3%, like, I think this podcast is a lot of work. Like that's so much. <laughs> it was, this is true. The database was is particularly time consuming and is always like not up to date anymore. Like there was a point where it was like, always on top of things, but now it's like impossible. But yeah, that came up because Elliot Weinberger, the translator and writer and critic, we were on a panel together and we had started 3% and he made a joke about how 3% was a lie, that it was probably closer to 0.3% of books that were published in the US. So to reference for anyone who is listening who doesn't know this, the 3% statistic comes from a few different sources. And the general idea behind it is that of all the books published in America in a given year, only 3% of them are translated from other languages into English. And that in other countries, such as Germany, France, elsewhere, Spain, um, that number is closer to like 40%. And that they're more connected to an international literary world than America is because America doesn't translate from other countries. We pr just produce our own writers and pay attention to them rather than paying attention to these voices from outside the world. So when I was talking to him about it, he's like, it's not 3%. There's no way the number's that high. All the like, data on it is really suspect. It's not very exacting. There's no way it's 3%. And so I was like, well, you know, we could kind of maybe figure that out. And so it's put together, I started putting another database in which we would track only at that time, fiction and poetry that had never before been translated into English and was coming up for the first time in America. So no retranslations, no new editions, nothing like that, just brand new books. And, um, and started putting in all the information, like who is the author, the translator, when was the book published, the price, the publisher, where was the country of origin for the author and the language, and later expanded into including the gender for both the translator and for the author so that we could do comparisons on like how many female writers get translated in English versus male writers. Um, and how many female translators get jobs versus male writers and how does this all play out. Um, so it was all set up to be like a kind of data 
uh, analysis database situation that people could use for research, um, but also to see like what this 3% number was like. And he was, he was more or less right. In the first year when he did this in 2008, there were only like 370 works of fiction and poetry that were translated into English for the first time, um, which is remarkably low. And the numbers before that had been predicted at like 1200, but what it turned out to be is that there are a lot of things that were either that you could count like uh, manga, graphic novels, or in one case, it seems to be is that there was a lot of research that was based on the idea that uh, books, um, like textbooks, like um, like language books were counted because they're coded as being in bilingual, that they're showing up within the data scrape as being translated. Although they're not really translated, they would like wasn't showing up correctly. So once you got down to it, there just weren't that titles. And this became like a rallying cry for people to do more books and translation, which was kind of the point was both to like get people encourage presses to do more books, encourage translators to do more books, and also a secondary sort of corollary to that of trying to get more funding for books and translation, which maybe was less successful, but the numbers did go up significantly into like the high 600s a few years ago, and then sort of started to dip back down. So they almost doubled, and now it's like kind of plateaued due to like variety of like economic factors, especially during COVID times, but also competitive factors. It used to be the, the first, I forget what the, I could look this up because everything, everything now also I should premise is hosted on the Publishers Weekly website because there, we took the database and made it like a searchable uh, up-to-date thing. So anytime I add a new book, you can find it immediately. You don't have to wait for me to like upload our old database or anything like that. So it's like an active ongoing resource that also now includes nonfiction and children's books. Um, so it has expanded in that way. But um, the in the first couple of years, there weren't that many oppresses that were doing translations. Like the number was pretty, pretty stand. It was like, I want to say it was like in the 50, 55 publisher range. And now that number is like over a hundred. So like the number of publishers that are doing translations has increased dramatically, either through the invention of new presses like Open Letter, Deep Vellum, Two Lines, Transit, places like that. Or there are other presses that maybe never did translations that now do like one or two. So things have sort of shifted and it's made it a more competitive situation where if we want to do a book, they're frequently like, I lose out on books now, which never happened before. Like there would generally be no one else who is paying attention. When we first started Open Letter, nobody cared about these books. And now we'll make an offer and they're like, oh, we already sold the rights to someone. So it, that the whole thing has kind of shifted in a way that has made it more difficult to expand that number of total translations, but is a more robust translation community that has its own set of like readerships and overlapping kind of ideas of what books should be made available. This is fascinating. I never would have guessed that it's like 600. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's not, it's just not that high in the end for fiction and poetry alone, but like still. That doesn't even, oh my gosh, there's this trend on TikTok. And I can't believe I said, just said that. But <laughs> there's a trend on TikTok about this girl that was like, who found out that in order to be considered a library, you have to have like at least a thousand books. And there's not, there's not even enough translated works per year to like make that, like, that's fascinating. Yeah. And it, it, it trickles down into like another aspect is like to be involved in the university that is uh, literally changing translators 
to become like professional translators is that they're the number of jobs that are available are, is, is quite limited. Like you, you can do other like commercial translation or non literary not I mean we don't we count every book counts every work of fiction counts it's not like literary fiction versus commercial fiction mm -hmm. but I mean like you could be doing things for newspapers or for magazines or for other other types of publications as a translator but if you're just doing literary translation that's a tough job when there's only x number of books coming out each year and you do a language even if you do like Spanish German or French that's still like under 200 books a year. So under 200 jobs a year for translators within working within those languages. So it is like an economic, like it's a very interesting economic situation in which everyone's sort of pulling to try and make it work. Nobody's making any great amounts of money off of it. And everyone's trying to, trying to just make those ends meet either through sales grants, multiple jobs, or having like an income that's not related just to translation. So it's kind of, a, it, it becomes a big ball of everything, but you're right. It is a, it is a shockingly low number. The first year when we, when I calculated it, it was like at the point because 70 or so of those books were poetry that you could literally, literally have read every book in the year that came out in translation. Like it was quite possible. It would have required, you know, pure dedication, but you can get through, no offense to poets, but you can get through a bunch of those books pretty quickly. So you could just burn through those 70 and then go through like the other ones, um, some of which are like very short, some of which are like very poppy, like there's the, it would, it would be possible. And I don't, that isn't the case anymore, which is good, but that was the thing that led to the best translated book award, which is the other like capstone that 3% put together, which was designed to like it came out of like an anger that the year end lists for like the New York Times and other publications rarely if ever included literature and translation. Like at that time, there was like maybe a Bolaño book would get referenced, but nothing else. So we wanted to create a, create a prize. By calling it a prize, I thought it would get more attention, but basically create a reading list of 25 titles a year from fiction and 10 from poetry that were like the best and that people could then read those as like, if you didn't know where to start, you didn't know what to do, here's like recommendations. And to use the website and the website's popularity to highlight each one of those books and give it its own like reason, its own review of which most of them never got a review anywhere. And like um, to premise it as like, why this book should be considered the best book of the year. And to judge it, not just based on the translation qualities, but on the book's qualities as well. And to merge those two things so that the book itself is what matters, that object as a, as a translated work, not as a translation or as a work, but combined. And that grew pretty quickly. And we ended up getting funding from Amazon's um, literary partnership program to be able to give out $5,000 cash prizes to both winning authors and both winning translators each year. And then right now, you'll notice that there is nothing out of that because the pandemic put a kibosh to all of it for the time being and we have to restructure to figure out how to make it work again but it was it was becoming unwieldy because that number expanded so much we had the judges that were reading like everything that was available they'd get assigned like 50 60 books a year to like evaluate and then come together as a group to figure out this this list but now that that number's doubled like it's 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 really overwhelming and at the same time we don't want to like not look at things um, and also like during the, when the pandemic started, it was like, well, we can't mail anything. Nobody's working anywhere. And I'm not going to be able to get 15 people to read 90 books on their screens in the middle of like literally an unprecedented uh, <laughs> pandemic. So we paused it and we're trying to figure out how to rejigger it so that it has more 
has a like a new revived interest and a new revived sort of mission statement behind it. It's so interesting that you say that you can't wouldn't force people to read on their screens during the <laughs> pandemic when I feel like the pandemic made more people <laughs> read on their screens. Like KDP blew up. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's true. The, but the like the the ones that we would have, like most of the people that were, were judges were either booksellers or translators or critics, and we would have like tons of PDFs, and they hated that. And they also do, just the booksellers in particular will never use like a Kindle uh, at all. So like there was a lot of like animosity built in <laughs> to the situation. So yeah, but I know it was it was so much more easy, so much easier as someone who does use the Kindle to like, just be able to read books there and get them instantly and not have to worry about like spraying them with bleach or whatever we were doing back in early 2020. Oh my gosh. Those early days when you're like wiping down groceries. Yep. Oh my gosh. Those were some days. They <laughs> <laughs> <I> truly were. <laughs> what is the biggest priority that you have when ha choosing a book to be translated it's kind of interesting because there's the thing that we're not the open letter because we're supported by the university of rochester and developed a reputation out of my experience with delkey which is tends to be more on the experimental end of things is that sales isn't the number one priority whereas i think it is for a lot of other presses not necessarily the nonprofits, but for a, even, I mean, within the nonprofits, they do want sales to be a major aspect of why you're, why you're choosing to do something. Cause it's a large investment. It's like, you can generally estimate, it's changing a little bit because printing prices are going up, but you can generally estimate that a translated book costs about $35,000 to produce. And that to earn that back with no other, with just sales. And most of these are paperbacks because hardcovers are a real tough sell for like, they don't have a built-in audience already. And they're like, strange or like from a country that you know most people are not familiar with or are like in some prejudiced way don't want to read something from uh hardcovers can be difficult so with a paperback you're getting back about six dollars per unit so you have to sell like six thousand units or more to be able to break even sales wise and that's even kind of an an under that's you probably need closer to 10 because of the amount of money that the distributor takes out of everything as well and continues to nickel and dime you to death no offense to all distributors but this is their this is their bread and butter this is how they function so to, to, to be able to do that like you would have to be looking for books that are like remarkable because the vast majority there is on three percent there was a time which i would love to get back to but there was a good year year and a half in which there were a lot of like bi-weekly posts that were doing a lot of analysis of of sales figures of numbers that were coming out of the translation database so on and so forth and there was one particular month in which I took all the books that came out like a year beforehand in translation and ran the numbers on how many copies they sold and then estimated giving, you know, some leeway to like what BookScan uh, was representing saying like, that's not accurate. That's only X percentage of it, but figured it all out. And the average is like 380 copies. Like it wasn't going to, it wasn't close. There was one there. I think there were four books that sold over a thousand copies and one that sold over 10,000 copies, if I remember right. And that was the perfect nanny, the Leela Slamani book from Penguin. But all the other books that were from anywhere else were like under a thousand copies. So like it was a, it's, it, it becomes clear that like, that's not going to work so well. Um, but so we don't play that game in the sense that like, why, like, if we know that that's pretty unlikely, 
let's find another route to being able to make this work, be it through grants and donations and through that sort of fundraising aspect by merging with other presses, working together in collaborative ways to find other, other revenue streams. But so our number one priority to answer your question is looking for something that's that's unique and doesn't exist in English right now. And the sense of like a form and style and structure and voice is what I try to look for. Is that something that's like adding to the existent corpus of, of, of knowledge and text that's available for English readers, having something that's not repetitive like that. So rather than doing like, that's why we don't do a lot of detective novels, unless there's something that's like unique about playing with the detective form, because those things exist. And like, there are presses that do like the Scandinavian noir that do like French um, mysteries. And that's great. Like there's nothing against those, but that's not a niche niche that we need to fill. That's already being taken care of. But I think what we want to fill is for the readers who are looking for something that's adventurous and unusual and, and in some way like shocks you awake. Not necessarily that it's like controversial or subversive, but is something that you're like, that's a new way of seeing, of writing, a new way of, of presenting this vision of the world. So that's the main attractor that we look for. That's so interesting. How do you like ensure and keep a translation as true to the story as possible? And like, I feel like this is like a pretty big fear when it comes to translated works that it isn't like true work. And like, we've seen that like in TV shows and we've seen that in movies. Like it's real fun when I watch like the Spanish movies and like the translation on the screen is not the real translation and stuff like that. So how do you ensure that? There's a few different, there's a few different answers to that question. One of the subtitling thing is interesting. There's a, um, a book from uh, Lawrence Venuti, who's like a famous translation uh, theorist called Contra Instrumentalism that came out, I don't know, maybe like three, four years ago now, but there's a chapter in there. There's three parts. And the third part is about subtitling and about what the, what the what fidelity means in subtitling and it doesn't mean what is being spoken because the purpose of the function of subtitles is to have you see them and know the gist of what's being said so that you can continue watching the visuals you don't want anyone to be caught spending their time reading and not seeing the movie or seeing the tv show so the the best sort of subtitles are ones that are cribbed and are short and are like that you can catch them in a second and know what was being said more or less. And that the nuance may not all be there, but you're capturing that theoretically through like the acting and through the, the, the way the scene is shot. Um, in terms of literary fiction, there's uh, it, it's sort of related, but the main thing isn't that you're capturing word to word scenarios, because that's not a real, mm -hmm. that's just not a real thing. And so um, knowing that that's not possible in any way that would be satisfactory in a like, logical, like uh, rigorous sort of an analytical sense, we divorce those two things and the, the translation becomes an interpretation of that original text and has to work in English. So we can tell, like when I edit books, I can tell when things are off and be able to like just pure experience and just reading them in English for like what, how a book works. Like I understand how these books set forth their ideas. It's not, it's not like there's, I mean, things that are experimental, Sure, they're, they, they could be doing all kinds of wild things. But for the most part, it's when you're reading books, you understand how it's constructed. There's like, there's not that much variation where it's like, oh yeah, you just like change voice in the middle of a scene where someone goes from talking very formally to being very colloquial. That doesn't work, that's not right. And so you can point to those parts and the translator can then address them and you can talk with them. 
but for the most part, it's like trying to get it to work in English as the best book that it possibly can be. And so it's not supposed to be exactly like the original. It's supposed to be a, an interpretation of that original that is satisfying on any number of different levels, depending on the nature of the book. If, it's a, if it is a mystery book or a thriller, the plot has to be really clear and crisp and like direct and function. If it's a book that's poetic, it has to be poetic in English, which is very much different than being poetic in say French or Spanish or Chinese, um, in which like the values of what the poeticism are, are different. Um, simply through like with Spanish as an example, like the number of connector words, the number of prepositions, the number of that's, the number of does, the number of, of ofs and uhs and, and all that, tends to create a rhythmic pattern in Spanish that does not play in English. So we would never want that to be the same in English. You'd want to capture the rhythm in a way that is provocative and works and is beautiful, but isn't exactly the same because if it was exactly the same, it would not be beautiful. It becomes very stilted and programmatic and the of the, for the, by the sort of constructions that Spanish can do and doesn't sound weird in Spanish, but sounds incredibly weird in English. So we're trying to work with that. The main, the main answer to the question is actually just working with translators that you trust. You have to have a good deal of trust in the translator that they're not just inventing things. They can generally answer questions that you have, but then doing like a repetitive iterative process of like reading it, giving feedback, reading like the re reworking like and editing it carefully and then getting them, providing them with like enough motivation and examples to be able to take it to the next level. So I try and like give both like very practical feedback in terms of like language structures or sentence structures or practical things, but then mark lar large sections where I'm like, this is just not working. Like you need to find a new way to make this function. What is supposed to be happening here? What is supposed to be the nature of the scene? And then really having that communication be the way that you can ensure that the book is as good as it possibly can be. That's translation is such an art form yeah. and I think that like a lot of people don't either like get that or like they don't like it's not as prevalent that like translation isn't a direct science translation is very much like an artistic expression almost right and it's beautiful I love I would recommend so we do a podcast the one I did just before this before recording this every week uh almost every week called the two-month review in which we try and take a long book generally that's translated and like go through it section by section to like analyze and discuss it but right now the season that we're doing has a book by Dimela Altik called Never Did the Fire but then more important and relative to what uh, relevant to what you're talking about is a companion book that went along with it in which the translator wrote a diary of translating this book and so it addresses a lot of the the issues that you and your uh, listeners would be interested in in terms of like what is yeah that fidelity question but like how does the process work what are kind of the sticking points how is it an art what are you what is the process like um Danny Han who wrote this he's a He's an incredibly famous, well-known, well-respected translator, writer, you know, uh, speaker, public figure who used to work for the British Center for Literary Translation and is really knowledgeable and a great writer about how to do, how to talk about this. So for anyone who's interested in like the art and the sort of like very much in the weeds and like specificity of like what the process of translating a literary work can be like, I highly recommend Catching Fire by, by Daniel Hahn. I'll list it in the bookshop.org storefront so that way you have access to it. Excellent. Love this.
so like I feel like I find translation so interesting because when we talk about the classics like we talk about like Kierkegaard and like we talk about these works that were very obviously translated and they're so part of like the zeitgeist of literature and of the what we consider the classics and it feels at least like to little me that like there was a period of time where books were translated fairly frequently and with huge popularity but like as you said that's very much dropped off like do you think that there's like a solid reasoning for that like do you think it's just like Americans are now ambivalent <laughs> there's a couple of things that happened one was like that so a lot of what you're talking about Kierkegaard is an example another good one would be Russian literature so and French literature to as, uh, as a secondary level to that but Russian literature had um I'm trying to pull her name out of my head and I cannot think of it but there's a woman Constance Garnett Constance Garnett translated I think like 150 works of Russian literature, like everything, every, all the Dostoevsky books, the Tolstoy, Chekhov's, like all of those books were translated by this British woman, Constance Garnett, over like this period of however many years her career lasted, but she was continually doing them as they, maybe as they came out, but also like recapturing some of those bigger, bigger titles. Um, and her translations were, are generally criticized today by today's standards because they were much more written to be like British books. So she took what was there and was translating them into essentially what seemed that felt very familiar to British readers, um, which may have helped his popularity in some regard because it was not off-putting. So now that you have uh, Pavir and Bolikonsky, whose translations I do not care for, but their approach is the opposite of this in which they're trying to be like, as like word to word, uh, sentence to sentence, sentence structures to sentence structure, exacting in their translations and they're retranslating these books and they're wildly different. Like they're just wildly, they have a different vibe to them. They have a different different approach and they are more, they're a lot less engaging in a, in a lot of ways and a lot more like linguistically rigid. I, there is a middle ground in which like someone like a Marian Schwartz who's translated Anna Karenina for Yale um, in which she works that is like in between these two kind of poles. And there are like other approaches that one could have. But I think the other thing that happened was that there was a time where you could go forth as like Knopf or as like a big publisher, go to Europe, find the big names, translate them, and they would be popular and be well-received. And then like, as uh, the commercial publishers started consolidating and all the presses that were those kind of boutique sort of presses that were doing things like that were bought by German companies um, and by larger corporations. Anything that wasn't, wasn't going to benefit the bottom line was rejected out of hand. And those translations may have been popular, but there's a lot that weren't. So like the ones that were, we know of, but there are a lot that like, there's a whole series from Avon that then became part of HarperCollins of like, I wanna say it's like 20 books that were a lot of Latin American books, some magical realists, some like more experimental. And out of those, I think there were like two that were successful and the others were absolutely not. And so once this starts to happen, uh, we consolidate into the business side of things and you have more of an MBA approach to publishing, these books are not considered worthy because they're not likely to break even. And so I think that that starts to shift it. And then you just reinforce that. Like, why are they not gonna break even? because people don't want to read them. Why don't they want to read them? Because people, Americans don't want, don't care about international places. They can't pronounce the names. The bookstores won't carry them. So then the bookstores don't carry them. And you create this cycle that like 
is that self-affirming prophecy where it's very easy to like go from, oh, this is a big international event. We have the hottest new Austrian writer of our time where that can be like very valuable in 1965 um, and not so much in 1985. Um, there's also like the overriding theory that like seems to, seems to track, but I don't know if there's a way to like truly justify or explain it is that during times of, of social disorder or dis-ease, there's a larger interest in international, international relations, international culture than there is when things are relatively quote unquote stable. So during the like 60s, you have a bigger influence in like reading Marcuse and like Derrida and uh, Foucault and like even the French philosophers and the social philosophers that were like advocating for radical change in the way that society is structured and in the, and in the self being structured. And then you get to like the eighties and you get Reaganomics and every, everyone's merging and none of that's of interest. Everything's about like, you know, savings and loan banks and like uh, figuring out ways to screw people in the stock market. So like it, the, it was like less of a priority for those people because the, the, the revolution wasn't happening, so to speak. And then you see that bump up again when we go to war with Afghanistan and all of a sudden there's a lot more interest in international literature because people are distraught by the fact that we've entered into this, like what, what is would become a forever war if it wasn't already. So that I think does play into it as well. Um, so there's always been like, un for as unfortunate as this may be, the more conservative and Republicans that are in control, the better our sort of books have <laughs> do with like, with like readerships, like they're sought out because they're like the alternative to like this bullshit. But, um, but you know, that's not a good way to live a business. I don't want that to be the case. <laughs> what a depressing way to run a business. <laughs> yeah, it's the worst, it's the worst, but does tend to be a little bit true there's a there's a kernel there <laughs> god how fascinating so interesting so interesting you have like all of the facts and it's just like i'd like want to like like <laughs> i'd like to just like sit in like a course with you for like a month and just like i do teach a course on translation and liter and publishing at the university of rochester every every semester i love it i'm gonna figure out how to audit it there you go from dc it'll be great Nice, nice. <laughs> what do you think is needed to get more books translated into English? Do you think it's just sheer interest or is it funds? Like, like what would you say is needed to do, get this done? It's really hard to say. I think part of it is uh, there's a few different threads that I'll throw out there. One is that in the university and in the uh, educational system that that books and translation aren't treated as separate. So like even in like the university where I teach there, you know, if you're an English major, you're reading English. You very rarely do any of my students. I have a teacher class on world literature and it'll frequently be the only class where they read a book that wasn't written in English originally. There is another class that another professor teaches that's on Nobel prize winner. So that does expand outwards. But outside of that, the divisions are so rigid that like this isn't, isn't part of their normal everyday reading experience even so far as like when you're talking about the classics like I've had students in my class who have no idea like who Flaubert or Dostoevsky or Proust are at all because they're not part of the English study of the English English degree um and you go into high school and that's even worse you backtrack you backtrack backtrack and it just becomes that it becomes foreignized in a way that's like not good for things so I think that would need to change and there's a a, a corollary to that that would then change the overall audience 
price level. So that you could sell more books because people wouldn't necessarily be intimidated or would be more into it. Like, how do you know that you like Korean literature? If you've never read a work from Korea, you have to like go out and do that and then find out that you like it. It's not been part of your life, but like with other things such as like Korean food or Korean cinema, it's much more likely that you will encounter it and be able to like have and develop that sort of fondness. Like the, the idea of like um, the K-pop fans and Parasite and Squid Games or whatever, those things that become cultural phenomena really lower the sort of like fear level that people might have for approaching them. But with literature, we don't, that's not part of it. Like it's, it's very rarely, rarely highlighted that way. And that ties also into like the media sort of presentation historically of where if you're an American writer, you're far more likely to get reviewed, written about, covered, highlighted, feted, like praised than you would be if you were writing in any other language, because these people are connected. They're part of the the scene, so to speak, and and have the those sort of like that sort of relevance. So as things are shifting into like you mentioned TikTok and uh, any of the social media, that is sort of shifting this away from the main gatekeepers of stuff. But and that will help, and I think that will help grow audiences. And I know that we've had um, speaking of the Korean books, one of our Korean authors, Ha Sang Nan when we brought out her second um, story collection, it was like originally it had been written like 15 years ago, but it became a bestseller again in Korea based on like the attention that it got in the States and like kind of circled back through. And we did have someone do like a book talk video on one of her books and sold out like 3000 copies in like a week because of a video. So like there is a power to connectiveness there that I think is important. Um, and then I think funding is like the other side to that. Like we can't rely on, you have to grow the audience and the audience has to be made receptive in some way, shape or form. And that's a cultural situation that you can't change as a sole publisher, but that is a larger, larger thing. Um, but then once they're receptive, there still needs to be funding available to be able to make this happen, especially right now, because the printing prices have doubled. So doing a book is like extraordinarily difficult right now for most presses that are not named Random House um, or Penguin. So it's, which those aren't even two, those are one. There's one publishing house that doesn't have as many problems. So like, and to be able to fund translators at a level that they deserve, that requires additional funding as well. So I think that there's there's a money issue um, that ties into both creation of an audience, but also in philanthropy. Historically, America had a lot of philanthropy for the arts and culture, and it does not anymore. Like Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg and all the people that are like the big philanthropists are not giving money to arts and culture. Whereas back, you know, 50 years ago, that's what you did. You funded a museum, you funded like uh, any sort of like uh, cinema, symphonies, publishing could fit into that. Everything, the art, art world is what philanthropy existed to make available to improve the lives of humans. And now it's like, no, we'd rather spend money on like figuring out how to make soy green so that we don't have to eat and can live forever and fly to the moon. Like it's, it's just a different, like those priorities have shifted so dramatically that like that funding structure that was in place for so long is gone almost entirely. And that's very problematic for Oh, uh, for a medium that is really slow in, in terms of like its consumption, in terms of its reach. You can watch the whole Netflix show in a weekend. You can play your games on your phone instantly. 
but a book takes time. And because it takes time and because there are so many options and very few guidance as to which option you might like, even though there is a proliferation of like uh, of Twitter accounts and TikTok accounts and uh, bookstagram things and like other, it's still not the same as like having a turning on Netflix and seeing what's trending or what's recommended to you based on things that you've watched in the past or things that like make sense. Like those algorithms do exist for books, but they don't function very well. And so like you have a situation where there's too many choices, not enough, not enough like taste making guidance that's that's reliable for most people and not a lot of funding to be able to promote them in a way that would be able to reach that audience. So I think it's like a confluence of those things. And it's slowly shifting a little bit because I think a lot of the editors that are younger and are more hip to like international stuff are more in power now. And the same thing with booksellers, the booksellers that were like older and more uh, like Con, like conservative in terms of their tastes and in terms of like what would work for their store, they are being replaced slowly by younger uh, booksellers who are buying their stores or becoming the managers and who have like a wider range of like what they can make work by being more of a tastemaker. So as that shifts, like it's 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 changing, but it's like a slow process because you know there's a million things that can distract us and a million things that that are worthy of distraction at the same time. It's so interesting how like it feels like the book culture and like the literature culture is like slowly shifting and the help of social media and the help of booksellers who are now like curators almost mm -hmm. like I have four different independent bookstores in DC and each one is vastly different yeah, and yeah. so it's just it's so interesting how things are shifting but like you said it's kind of like at like a glacial pace <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, very much so. It's like it's it's a hard it's a hard thing to change, especially because like a lot of the the uh, disposable income for this sort of uh, of material is in a couple different spots, but it tends not to be the spot that's most valuable, which is which is problematic. Like we're much more likely to spend. Oh, I, every student that I interview or like uh, survey when I do my class is much more likely to spend far more money on streaming services than on books in a given year like far more, be it Spotify, Netflix, HBO, you know, Hulu, whatever it might be, you add all that up and it's like double the amount that they're willing to spend on books because of the nature of like that, everything at once and the nature of like, it's a slow monthly payment. Like it is a different, different situation. Then you have like older people who have established careers and have the disposable income that are like collectors and collect a lot of books, but they're also maybe collecting things that aren't necessarily our sort of strange hip things that are designed for people who are in their like 20s and 30s. So it's 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 kind of a weird, I mean, all the demographics are very strange and books don't really have, they're not really bound to any particular one. They can be read by anyone from any group in any point in time. And, you know, one of the other weird side effects of America is that we don't get paid for books that get checked up from the libraries the way that you do in the UK. That if a book gets checked out from the library, there's a royalty paid to the author and to the translator. So that doesn't happen here in the States. And so although I want I hope all our books are in all the libraries and people can check them out there for free, that's actually like sort of a losing proposition from a business perspective. Um, and yet is the place where we're finding most of our readership is from people that can go check out the books from the library and not have to like invest in, in them. I'm sorry, when the UK pays for you get, small, yeah, you get a small royalty 
of when the book is checked out. Fascinating. Yeah, it's a huge difference. It's a big difference, especially for when I talk to translators about it, it's important to them because they do get like a little, I don't think it's very much. I don't even know what it is, but it's not, it's not super significant, but it's so that you, if a book's checked out a thousand times, you know, you get something for it. Whereas here you just, I, we, we get our $8 or whatever for the book. And then it's checked out a thousand times, which is great for readership, not great for financial side of things. Yeah. Fascinating. Yeah. Like would change things too. The other thing that would change things dramatically would have been the fixed book price, which in other countries is pretty standard, um, whereby you can't discount things. So every book, so our book is $15 or $15.95 or whatever, it's $15.95 no matter where you go. Um, Amazon, Costco, independent bookstore, wherever. And that discounting process that's because we're a purely capitalist society with like as few regulations as possible on things like that allows for like the deep, deep discounting, which only then allows for those, those entities that are very powerful because they're selling so many copies to demand larger discounts so that our share, our cut of everything goes down precipitously as they continue to discount it. And again, it's another one of these like uh, logistical traps where I, I, I support Amazon in its theoretical nature of allowing people to access books at the most affordable price in whatever form they want. No objections to that. I think that everyone should have access to every book as cheaply as possible. Books should not be like exclusive to the wealthy in any way, shape or form. Like they should be as democratic as possible. The problem is that we're not getting, it's not supporting its own industry, it's sort of eating itself by like producing more and more and more at a cheaper rate that then cuts into all the publishers that are producing things, which cut into the distributors who then have to pass on those costs. And everyone keeps getting these costs passed on to the point where like we have to jack up our prices knowing that an independent bookstore, you won't want to buy it there because it's too expensive, but the price will be half of that if you go buy it on Amazon. And we'll end up getting the same amount of money from the two different groups, but we're essentially screwing both the independent bookstores and the customers that go there, but not with any intent solely because of like the economics of the, the situation. Fascinating. I also love that like not many people know anymore that like Amazon started as like a bookseller. <laughs> yeah. Like it really truly was like a discount bookseller. It's fascinating. It's like truly like that snake that eats itself. Fascinating. What are some of like the really interesting trends you've noticed when it comes to book translations? Oh man, I think it's tough with that because there are there there the the books that get translated tend to be are the ones that set the trends tend to get replicated in some way and have like commercial success. But I do think that there is a push for more diverse voices, both from in terms of country and in terms of like like representation. Um, so there have become more like queer translations, translations from countries that otherwise were underrepresented, like say uh, Madagascar or other other places that you may know. Madagascar is one that one of my former students um, explicitly went to try and uh, translate books from because there had been zero. There had been zero books translated from Madagascar writers into English up until the point when she started doing them. So. There are like that sort of that I think is the trend It's figuring out like what are the like missing pieces and why are those of interest in terms of like the overall like the writing trends. I mean, there was the whole noir thing for a while. There's a bit of like the Lena Ferrante 
um, situation, which is like that kind of like almost like throwback um, large British Victorian sort of written epic. And then there's also the very much, very much a trend for um, auto fiction that's been around forever. Like the French, French female writers from like the 80s and 90s really like pioneered a particular voice and a particular way of writing an auto fiction, but it's expanded greatly through like the, the, the prominence of like Knossgaard and a few other handful of other people to the point where now we get a lot more submissions that are like in that vein. And even if they don't seem like it all at first, it'll turn out that it's like, oh yeah, this is based on my life. It's just reconstructed. There is very much like that as a mode of writing. And I think that that's impacted what we're seeing in international literature. There's less there's more of an adherence to that because it's more likely to be popular. The sort of ambitious, wild, like uh, big book is, is so much more risky. So we don't see as many of those, unfortunately, as we used to, but there are still like so many because people, I mean, there's so many different publishers, there's so many different writers, people working in their own vein that you can find things like that, but you have to be on the lookout for them. Fascinating. So interesting. Okay, this has been so much fun. I know that you are trying to get back home. So I just have two more questions for you. No, no worries. The, my first question is, what books are you expecting to come out of Open Letter this year? Like, is there anything in particular you want to like share with listeners that you're super excited about? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I'll tell you one thing. And so this sort of like, uh, I'll tell you two, two particular things. And they, it sort of ties into what you were talking about earlier, too. One is that we have the follow-up to um, Elisa Shua Dusipin's uh, Winter in Sokcho, which won the National Book Award for Translation last fall. Her follow-up, Pachinko Parlor, comes out this fall in September, I believe, or maybe October. Um, and that was very exciting because it's a time that we have had like a, a massive like commercial success and critical success. And to be able to continue publishing her is really fantastic and wonderful and she's an amazing writer. The second one is that we have three books coming out in July that are part of a new program that we have where it's called the Translator Triptych, where a different translator each year picks three books and they come out simultaneously and are meant to like sort of reflect off one another and be much more about like creating a sort of series than it is each book being like a buzz book, but trying to create like a way of talking about them in a larger sense. So this year's um, translator is a woman, Katie Whittemore, and the three books that she's chosen are all by Spanish female writers. So Wolfskin by Laura Moreno, which is about a woman whose father has died. She has some, some dis distance from her sister and she's getting divorced and is like trying to figure out her life with her kid at her dad's old house. And it's a beautiful book that really very poetic and also like tricks you into paying attention to like certain characters and certain modes that at the end get twisted around. The second one that's in the series is Sarah Mesa's Bad Handwriting. And if there's one book that everyone should read, it's Sarah Mesa's 4x4. When Dark Academia was like the big trend, 4x4 was, is part of that, that book. It's an amazing, incredible novel we came out with a couple of years ago. And Bad Handwriting that's coming out in July is a series of short stories that kind of fit together as like almost like you could almost read it as like a couple characters that sort of like are reflected. But a lot of them have to do with young women um, growing up in like a countryside outside of like a main city in Spain and dealing with issues of power and power structures and the fam, especially within the patriarchal family. And then the third one is called Mothers Don't by Katisha Aguirre. And this is an amazing book that's written like a true crime novel um, about this woman who, uh, when she's giving birth, she sees this new story about this person who drowns her two babies. 
And it turns out that she had met this woman years and years and years before. She was like a friend of a friend. And so she like goes to the trial and investigates and writes a whole book about how does a woman come to murder her children? Um, so it reads like a true crime as if it, and it feels real, but it's actually not, it is actually fiction. So those three books put together and we have on our website, on the open letter website, if you go there, there's a translator triptych bundle and you can get all three of them for like $35. But those, those are great. Those three books and then Pachinko Parlor, I put as like our big, like forthcoming books for the rest of this year. I love that. I will absolutely link the open letter website. So that way everyone can purchase this because it sounds so fun. Perfect, perfect. And then my final question for you, which is my closing question to all of my guests, what books are you currently binging? The one that I just finished, uh, uh, aside from the things I have to, I mean, I edit like a billion books because I also edit for Delkey Archive now, which is a whole different story, but they, uh, the founder that I worked for died um, in 2020. And, and so I inherited like the editorial realm of it. So I'm editing books constantly for both Open Letter and, and for Delkey. So a lot of my reading re relies on that. There's one author from that process named Carlos Milano, who wrote this book called The Irish Sea, which is already out. It's fucking brilliant. And then a book called Endless Rose that's coming out, which I absolutely love and just finished. But the other book that I just finished that I really did like was Noah Hawley's Anthem, which isn't a translation, but is an interesting book about like our current moment, very uh, politically driven in terms of like the divisiveness and craziness that we've lived through over the past few years, but I found absolutely fascinating. But in terms of like a book that I just finished, I binged that over our vacation or over our vacation in Latvia. I read, uh, I read that like uh, in just a few days, like recently, recently, and I haven't like picked anything up since. Like I just finished that and like now traveling home, I'm getting back into editing various things. And I'm like, oh, I don't have a book to read for fun right now, but I will soon enough. But that was the last one that was like for fun, fun. Love it. I feel like as like an editor, it must be so difficult to like read for fun and like finding that time and like it starts to feel like work. So like impressed that you still do it. Yeah, I used to, I, I used to do it in a way where I could like uh, write a lot of reviews. So I'd read things to write about them. And that was sort of the excuse, but that's even become difficult to find time for, but it happens. Well, this has been amazing. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you so much for like coordinating this from Latvia. Like, <laughs> no, problem. no problem. Sorry it took so long. This has been Chad Post from the University of Rochester's Open Letter Press. I have linked Open Letter in the episode description, or you can visit openletterbooks.org to check out their various translations and resources. Again, Open Letter is a nonprofit literary translation press that is all about increasing access to world literature for English readers. They think making world literature in English is crucial to opening our cultural borders, and its availability plays a vital role for maintaining a healthy and vibrant book culture, and I can't agree more. Thank you so much for listening to A Bookshelf Binge. I'm your host, Jessica. You can follow me on TikTok and Instagram at Bookshelf Binge. Merch is now completely integrated directly into the website, which is so exciting. So be sure to check out abookshelfbinge.com to see all of our sponsors, merch, episodes, and so much more. As always, these episodes are available early and ad-free on the Patreon. I'm hoping to start my Throne of Glass limited series with frequent guest Jess, or you might also know her as the Bookish Baddie. So be sure to subscribe to get access to that when it goes live. Thank you again for listening, and I'll talk to you next week.